This is Beth Bruno, and you're listening to the Fierce and Lovely Podcast. On this podcast, I amplify the feminine voice and curate feminine glory so that you, my listener, find your own fierce and lovely story. It has become somewhat of a sacred journey for me to uncover the stories of women from around the world throughout time and present day. The more fierce and lovely women I explore, the more I fall in love with the one in whose image we reflect. My hope is that in this space, you embrace your own beautifully ordinary life as the majority story most of us are living. Welcome to the Fierce and Lovely Podcast. Today's episode is awesome. And I, I want to just share from the get-go why I believe you need to listen to this and why it's applicable to all of us. Whether or not the particularities of her story are your story, uh, what I love about this conversation is that it is in some ways um, the kind of conversations I think we ought to be having with our sisterhood, with our friends. Um, How many of us are engaging with one another on our origin story, on where we're from, where we've come from, what family we were born into or adopted? into and how much of that has shaped us and shaped who we are today as a friend to one another. And so I would love for this to almost serve as a model to you in how to engage some of those stories with the women in your life. Sandia Oak's story is um, unique. It's unique to her, um, but it is a, a wonderful example of getting into each other's story and talking about some other things as a result. For instance, if we have experienced transformation in our story, how are we marking that in memory, in remembrance? Um, if we are embracing our ethnic identity in new ways, what does that look like for us? And so as you go deeper in your own relationships, I'm sure that's a goal for many of you in 2020. I hope that this conversation inspires you. And I want to point out that this year in the show notes, I'm actually including questions, whether they're personal reflection questions or group discussion questions based on the conversation that I get to have on this show. Um, So grab some friends, listen in, uh, ask each other the questions, and hopefully you will grow as fierce and lovely women in 2020. Hey, Sandia, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Beth, it's good to be here. Well, I would love to just jump right in to our conversation with you sharing with us, with my listeners, a little bit about who you are, where you are, what occupies your day, um, and then we'll jump into our conversation today. Awesome. Sounds good. So I'm Sandia, and I am currently sitting at my mentor's house in Wisconsin. I'm back here for a little bit of the holidays. And I've got a cup of coffee next to me and just looking forward to this time together. Um, Currently, I serve uh, with a ministry, a college ministry called Crew in the Twin Cities in Minneapolis. And I work with college women and specifically Greek women and people of color. 
And right now my season is full. Um, It's really fun though, too. There's a lot of traveling involved and lots of kind of pioneering some new things. And um, yeah, when I'm not on campus meeting face-to-face with gals, I could be doing many different things. Um, I'm like a woman of many different passions, uh, such as exploring the outdoors and uh, coffee dates with friends, making charcuterie boards, and a little bit, I've been dabbling in a little bit of writing recently. And so um, those are some of my hobbies. Um, I am a transracial adoptee, international, and I was originally born in India, but I have grown up in Wisconsin for majority of my life and then recently moved to Minneapolis. Wow. Well, no wonder I've been drawn to you online because we have a lot of similar passions. <laughs> Can yes. I just, this is so surfacey, but you've mentioned it and I'm curious, tell me more about the charcuterie boards and what that looks like for you as a hobby. Oh my gosh. It is the best. Whenever I think about having friends together or throwing a party, I immediately know that the menu is going to be based on a board. And so, I mean, nothing says it better with a good block of cheese and a good glass of wine and some grapes and all the other good stuff. And so I, I've just fallen in love with creating beautiful pieces that you can eat. And um, actually just yesterday at our staff gift exchange, uh, a friend won this book called Boards and Platters. And I was so... (laughs) Oh man, I wanted everything to have that book. And then she said, Hey, if you buy me an Americano, I'll give you the book. And so the deal was I walked away with the book. So I'm excited to explore that and to create good things that you can eat. I love that. It's like art, isn't it? When you can do that with all sorts of colors and textures and um, spread it around. Are you into different themes in the charcuterie board? Like, do you know what I mean? I've seen some of yeah. that. Yeah. Uh, so far, I've done pretty much a little bit of sweet, a little bit of salty, some cheese and crackers, but I want to explore and try to do like breakfast themes or different themes for different different gatherings. And so I'm not there yet, but I hope to get there. <laughs> that's so fun. Um, mm-hmm. All right. Well, thanks for sharing that. I love that that's more of your personal side of your hobbies and whatnot. Let's dive deep. And <laughs> I would love <laughs> to hear some of your thoughts around the words fierce and lovely and how those uh, sit with you, um, how you explore those in your own life? Where where are they intersecting in your world? Um, and just some of your thoughts around that. Yeah. So uh, something fun to share is I actually have a tattoo on my right foot that says fierce and lovely. And oh my gosh. I actually had thought of this before I even knew of your podcast, which is uh, crazy cool. Um, so In the last year, I was sitting in a counselor's office and I was working through some of my past trauma and junk in my life. And um, this counselor ended up um, bringing in a bunch of plates and a hammer. And I had made a comment before that saying, there's just so much in me. I feel like I just want to break some plates. Like It just would feel good. And I think I had said it just pretty flippantly and not expecting that the counselor would bring this in. And so 
Um, the counselor brings us in and sets it before me and says, you have full permission to make as much noise as you want to. And I was like, oh my gosh. And I was brought to tears. And so, um, uh, this person stepped out and then, uh, I ended up just taking time, calling things out in my past that brought up a lot of anger and, um, just smashed (laughs) these plates to pieces. And then from that, when the counselor came back in, they said, how did that feel? And I said, I feel like something fierce just came out of me. And that wasn't a word in my vocabulary. It wasn't a word we had discussed. And so I was like, yeah, that just something fierce came out. And they had said like, yep, something fierce did come out. But alongside of you being a fierce woman, you're also lovely. And I was like, wait, what? Like that, those two, I don't know how those two go hand in hand. And um, they explained it a bit. And it just sat in me of, yeah, there is something about agreeing and being angry at some of the things in my story and having a righteous anger and letting that out and saying, no, like I, I'm going to push toward light and life rather than be consumed by darkness. And, um, and then the lovely came from just, I didn't grow up hearing that I was lovely or beautiful. Um, I grew up with other harsh words and, Uh, The lovely of there's beauty in me, there's beauty around me, calling that out. Um, After hearing that, it sat with me. And for a couple of weeks, um, I had pondered the idea of fierce and lovely. And it just felt like that (laughs) encompassed my story greatly. And so I had been wanting a tattoo for a while and couldn't figure out what to do. And then when I was like, I think I'm going to do this, I, yep went, grabbed a couple of my girlfriends and got fierce and lovely tattooed on my right foot. Oh my gosh. I love that. I love that. I really want to see it now. I want to see a picture of that. Um, those are, <laughs> I've considered similar, like getting a tattoo of those two words. I'm a little mm-hmm. fearful that one day I'll grow tired of saying these words so much as I talk mm-hmm. about them every week. So I'm a little worried about putting them on my body, but I do love them. And I love that you have marked yourself in that way. Uh, And I love that just that tension of the the righteous anger toward your story. Um, But the, 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 the choice of life and light in the midst of that, I think that's, that's what's most lovely is choosing to follow Jesus in the midst of all of that trauma and despite it. Right. Mm-hmm. Love that. Yeah. Love it. Well, can you can you talk a little bit more about um, some of those aspects of of your story? You mentioned being a transracial adoptee. Did you? How did you describe you were yeah. adopted from India? And you said it was mm-hmm. a. Tr- tell me, I'm not going to put words in your mouth. Tell me again what you said. Yes. So it's I'm an international transracial adoptee. So that means I've been adopted from internationally from uh, New Delhi, India, and transracial is I've been adopted. I was adopted into a home um, with a family who had a different ethnicity than I do, and they were white, mainly German background descent, and so that's where the transracial adoptee comes in. Okay, got it. And so, what has that been like for you as you have been exploring more? of your story, um, working with a counselor, looking a lot at the 
you know, not hearing words of lovely said over you. Um, What's that journey been like for you? Yeah, that's a big question. I know. I would, yeah. I mean, so a little bit of my journey is being adopted from India and then uh, being adopted into a town that was majority, like that was all white until I turned 11 years old. And so I was the only person of color in my town until I was 11. And um, nobody really talked much about it, about adoption or about India. Nobody in my home talked about it. Um, The unfortunate part is that I was adopted into a home where I use the word broken adoption. It's not what you want to hear, hope to hear. But I was pretty uh, severely abused and traumatized and neglected by my mom and dad and my brothers and my family. And so uh, I never heard tones of grace or beauty. Um, It was mostly tones of shame that we didn't want you. We didn't love you. If we could send you back, we would. And so the idea of adoption growing up wasn't something that I thought about much, or if I did, it I didn't have a great picture of it at school. I think I remember hearing comments from people at school, um, pretty harsh comments, like people asking, "Well, do you not do not uh, clean yourself well because your knees are darker?" But uh, darker women tend to have a little bit darker features on their elbows and knees. It has nothing to do with cleanliness. It just is. And I remember getting a locker, uh, a note in my locker that had some pretty uh, wild racism, um, drawn pictures over it, uh, pictures on it and words. And it was pretty hard, but nobody entered into those spots with me as a kiddo. And my parents didn't say anything to a, like to affirm my Indianness or the beauty of being brown. And so there's a term called mirroring and it's the ability for, especially uh, an adoptee as a kiddo to be able to see someone else that looks like them to affirm that brown is good or black is good. And um, I didn't have someone to affirm that brown was good growing up. And then fast forward to life in college, um, I started to see people of color and I thought it was awesome, other ethnic minorities, but I didn't associate myself as an ethnic minority. And again, adoption wasn't a big piece for me. Fast forward more to post-college, working in ministry, I started to cross paths with other people of color. And um, it wasn't until, honestly, like almost four and a half years ago, uh, I happened to be at a crew conference in Fort Collins. and this is kind of where my ethnicity started to become something that I could see and understand and hold. And I remember sitting in Moby gym and hearing the speaker talk about how the Bible does not try to erase ethnicity. Like we've tried to erase ethnicity. Dr. James White said that, and it hit me that I have tried to hide my own ethnicity because I, no one affirmed it. No one said it was good. And I didn't really have people to associate with it. And so I did some work with the Lord on that and asked him to help me steward that. I asked for forgiveness for not affirming the way he had made me and created me with such beauty and purpose. And have seen just a sweet uh, journey of uh, really coming into my ethnic identity and affirming that and living out of that. And now seeing it being used for good 
in other people's lives. And so it, it's a little bit of a roller coaster. Um, and then something else I just want to throw out is uh, adoption is a pretty big piece. Obviously, it's a big piece of my story. But another piece of India is getting to go back to India um, four years ago and meet people who took care of me as a baby from my orphanage. My pastor's wife came with me and it was just such a significant experience. But even then I was in a country where everybody did look like me, but they didn't necessarily talk like me. And so there was a lot of navigating uh, a couple different things of like my ethnicity, the culture, uh, like really like, where do I fit as far as my ethnic journey of I'm here in India all these people look like me, but we don't share the same culture. And then in America, I'm an adoptee in the Midwest, and there aren't a lot of uh, other Indian adoptees that I had met previously. And so, yeah, it's a lot of navigating, um, but God's been really kind in that as well. It sounds like a lot of feeling um, a lack of belonging in all the, sp- all the spaces. Yeah, I think so. A little bit of who looks like me, who talks like me. Yeah, I guess you could say that. Well, so you go back to India. This is four years ago. Um, and you had found out a little bit of information from your adoptive parents, I guess, of where you were, the, the orphanage that you were in. Is that about? No, can I actually? Yeah, tell me more. Yeah. So actually... I didn't have enough information to find my orphanage. And um, KP Ohanan, he is the founder of Gospel for Asia, which is a ministry that helps put schools and takes care of kiddos all over Asia. Um, He came to a conference uh, in Minneapolis and it happened to be his liaison. And I... uh, He had asked me where I was from and all of that. And I had given him some information And he said, I could find your orphanage for you. And I had already tried to find it with the help of some other people and we couldn't find it. And then about a month later, after I gave KP the information, um, he had said, I found your orphanage and I sent some people there to talk to them and they want to talk to you. And from there, I talked to them, asked them if I could come and do a little bit of a mission project there and get to meet the people. And they said, yep, come on over. And so I had happened to be leading a trip to Paris already uh, for crew. And so then after that, my pastor's wife came and met me in Paris and we flew to India and spent about 10 days there. And so that in itself is a whole nother unique journey. Wow. That is amazing. What a gift that he was able to find it for you. And then the the same, some of the same workers were still there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the people who run the orphanage and this lady named Auntie Elsie. And she was the pediatrician there. And I had brought a couple of photos of me as a babe. And she's like, yep, I do remember oh you. And so it was so sweet. Mm. It feels like... Um, it's just that in the importance of knowing where you came from and your origin story and to to be there, even though there was probably there was that sense that you described of this is not my culture and I don't understand the language, even though I look like everybody, to still sensually be there and smell and see and hear, I think that was probably really grounding for you. Mm-hmm. I think at that point where I was at in my ethnic journey, there was some groundedness. Like I think about like, like 
I got to know a little bit more of my story because I saw um, men and women from my birth country. And so I felt like I knew a little bit more of who I was and where I came from. And then I would say coming back from India was just a whole new piece of, okay, now I know these pieces and I've seen these pieces. How does that change me? And I think I had to go through a little bit of um, some disruption in my own life and story of what do I do with these pieces now? I didn't know what to do with them. So what did that look like? And what does the journey look like to embrace um, fully that you are a woman of color and yet for the majority of your life, you were in a white majority world and probably saw through that lens, right? And so what has it been like for you to to fully step into that and, and embrace who you are? Well, over the last four and a half years, so I've gone to India five years ago and then four and a half years ago is when I became aware more of my ethnic journey and my ethnicity as an Indian woman. I just started pressing in and I tried to make as many connections with people and other people offered up connections to me of Indian families or Indian friends that I could connect to. I started reading more, um, just like online about India and about Indian adoptees. And I started to learn how to cook Indian food and um, yeah, just have delighted in being an Indian woman. And then in the recent, I'd say probably last year, in the last year, since last November, I've kind of jumped in um, to embracing it even on a whole new level and then stewarding that. And so last year in November, I went to the Lenses Institute. Athletes in Action and Crew host this five-day intensive for people. And it's based uh, toward working toward biblical oneness, as seen in John 17. And the idea of it is to help people see understand and act toward biblical oneness. And I went to it and went through it. And I just saw pieces of my story get disrupted. And I had to tend to them and mend them and um, invite people into them. And it was hard because there was a lot of previous pain that revolved around being a woman of color, being brown, and feeling like I'm navigating this in a white world. And so um, it there was a lot of healing that needed to happen ongoingly after that. And shortly after that, one of the facilitators had invited me to participate and, and come on board and uh, to be a facilitator with it, with this group. And so in February, I ended up joining and onboarding as a lenses facilitator. And even through that, getting to serve in this capacity within my role and crew, I just I can't get enough of it. I feel like I'm ongoing learning more from other women of color that I'm around and these spaces of helping others see um, where they're at in their own ethnic journey. And I feel like I walk away learning so much as I'm shepherding others, showing others. And even back on my campus, the more I get to connect to women of color, the more I learn more about myself. And so I feel like there's all these avenues that God has placed that I continue to grow from Mm -hmm. revolving around being an Indian woman. Mm -hmm. I'm so curious about that, the Lenses Institute and the concept of biblical oneness. Can you share a little bit more about kind of what that means, um, what that means biblically? Like what, 
describe the John 17 scene that it's based on and then a little bit of what that means maybe practically as you leave a five-day institute like that? Yes. And so um, practically what that, our hope is that we would move and work toward oneness and not sameness. Um, We weren't created to all look alike, to all talk alike, to all think alike. We were created Um, we're image bearers. And so we each bear the image and we need each other at the table and um, to be able to portray God's image as a whole. And I think sometimes when we talk about cultural competency or racial justice or all of that, I think sometimes people think we have to all think like alike, or we have to be, we have to transform ourselves to look like this one people group or so on. And that's not what it is. It's that we would live out who God has made us each individually to be and come together, but we would also honor each other. Um, Whatever background you're coming from, we would honor that. We would see the glory in that. We would affirm that, but we would work toward oneness, um, being unified in Christ. And so I, I'm just already like, I can see the passion coming up in me. I just get so excited about this. And um, the hope would be that as people come to the intensives, that they would walk away, not only knowing more of how God's wired them, their own background, their own um, ethnic journeys, but that they would use what they've gained to then serve whatever population or capacity or people group that they're working with in different areas of uh, of AIA or crew. And so that there would be a spot where people could come to this ministry and everyone would get served. Everyone would have a place um, and everyone would be able to be ministered to and that it's not just a, a one way for everybody, if that makes sense. So in my frame of reference with um, having lived overseas and thinking about contextualizing our ministry to the culture that we're in and trying to be as culturally appropriate as we possibly can, leaving our Americanness behind. This feels a little similar as we think about being not trying to force sameness on an American campus or an American ministry. We all join this one probably white-led ministry on campus, but we're very contextualized based on the different ethnic groups represented and mm-hmm. in, and embracing that sense of oneness, not sameness. In a, that's what I'm trying to say. Does that make sense? Yes, that does make sense. And yes, that's what we're trying to do because we don't, we have, we do have so many different people in our crew ministry movements. And we want this to be a place where it doesn't just look like one certain people group, but a place where everyone can bring their full selves, their whole selves to a place and be affirmed for their whole selves. Yeah. You know, I've watched um, fr- being in Fort Collins, but also being former crew staff and having still so many relationships and crew. I've watched from afar the intentional movement toward this, towards um, more diversity, more diverse voices, um, being on stage. This summer was such, it just felt like the culmination of a lot of hard work in that regard. But I've also been witness to backlash. Um, Being a crew alum, I'm a part of, I'm just in various Facebook groups, and I've, I've been stunned to, to hear some of the response to that negative response as if crew is trying to be, you know, 
politically correct or progressive or um, I don't know, some of the different complaints. What do you, what do you think about that? I know probably what you think. What do you <laughs> what are you experiencing um, in terms of any kind of hesitancy or resistance towards being this intentional in the ministry of crew? I'm gonna narrow my answer down a little bit. I have not personally received any backlash from the outside uh, world of crew. But I have had friends who have experienced that in various ways. Um, I would say I know that God wants to use crew to reach people for the gospel. And I don't know that the ways that crew has worked in the past is going to bring us forward toward the kingdom if we continue to do the same things the same way that they've always been done. Our movements need to look different. We need to have more different Uh, faces and people and backgrounds. And I think sometimes the way crew has been set up, it maybe worked in the past, but I think we need to continue to give space for change and to keep moving us forward. And I think some of the backlash I see within the ministry is that not everybody's ready or open-handed to make some of those shifts because change is hard for people and it's hard to to take risks. But I think for the sake of the gospel, for the sake that every person has a spot at the table, we need, we really need to make some changes and some shifts um, on campus level, on regional level and national level in order for us to really continue to take the gospel out and see lives transformed. Mm -hmm. Yes. So Sandia, you've given us such a beautiful window into your own journey and the work that you do um, on behalf of students and fellow crew staff. And um, I just love interacting with with women like you who are leading and leading out of your own story and um, just passionate to see the gospel Um, spread. And so tell us a little bit. I noticed this fall, just as I've been following you online, I noticed some pretty significant celebrations that you are making in this regard. Can you just kind of conclude by sharing with us um, what I'm alluding to and what that really meant for you? I love sharing my name story. Uh, October 1st is my name change day. And uh, the story behind my name is that when I was adopted, my adoptive family gave me an American name. And so my whole life, I grew up um, with this American name. And it wasn't until eight years ago that I happened to be looking through some past photos um, from my childhood. And I realized that there was this Polaroid picture of me when I was in India but the only way I figured out that it was when I was so young was by the date on it. And on the front of it, it had my first, middle, and last name, my American name. And I took it out of the plastic just to look at it a little closer. And I happened to flip it over. And on the back, it said, they call her Sundia in the nursing home hospital. And I was like, that's my name. And so I ended up Googling how to say it so I could like learn my own name. And then I looked up the meaning. And the meaning is to connect darkness to light and a lower power to a higher power. And so I, when I realized that that was the meaning, 
it just made so much sense to me to invite others to start to call me Sundia. And I think then, okay, so then going, moving forward, I had to kind of navigate like just what it would look like to change my name uh, and kind of ask God to continue to show me if this is the path that he wants me on. And as he revealed it, um, I went to court actually uh, four years ago and legally changed my name to Sundia Oaks. And actually, um, Oaks comes from a street in Fort Collins, um, yes, Oak Street. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and the fun part about that is that uh, I had asked the Lord, God, would you give me a new last name so I could pair it with my first name? And when he revealed this to me, uh, I knew that it was a gift from him that he had revealed it to me. I hadn't told really anybody that I was going to actually move forward to her changing my name. So it was kind of like this little secret between me and the Lord. And once I saw the Oak Street, I kind of thought, you know, the Lord knows I'm a lover of nature and exploring and um, trees. And an oak is a very strong and sturdy tree. It's been through a lot of turmoil and weathered. And so it's, and it's grown stronger because of it. And so I ended up um, legally changing it to Sundia Oaks uh, in October uh, four years ago, and I continue to celebrate that. And I like I think that goes alongside of living out of my ethnic identity, my ethnic journey. In that, um, going back to Sundia is a way to affirm the name that God first gave me, as well as my Indian name. And out of that, I mean. The connecting darkness to light. One of my biggest passions is evangelism and outreach. And another passion is um, connecting with transracial adoptees. And it just continues to flow out of this calling and this passion that I have to be a bridge, um, to bridge darkness to light. And so it's very, very sweet. I love that. I love that story. I love your name. I love that. you have two markings. You have an official legal transformation, um, and you have the, the tattoo on your foot. Um, and I just, what a beautiful picture of um, just embracing your story and living into the image that, that you bear. And I love it. Thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your story, some of your story with us. Um, I've just loved getting to know you a little bit better. I appreciate you being here. Thanks, Beth. I feel honored and I'm so thankful to be able to be a voice here in this Mm -hmm. space. 